Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Y'all, I'm a tenacious cuss. You're not going to get out of it that easy. Um, I said last week our goal was 15. That's our modest goal, and our bold goal is 20. I'm not going to tell you where we are, but I, can't, I will tell you that we're getting close. We can reach that. Um, I was just reading an article just yesterday. Oh, kids, you're dismissed. I remembered a little earlier this time. Kids and youth. Um, so if you have tots between two and four or anyone under fifth grade, um, or if you are a youth, your teachers, your youth pastor, everyone's in the back waiting for you. They will take you up. Um, also, guys... Can we give it up for Chandler right now? Let's give it up for Chandler. So good news and bad news, um, which will make a little more sense in the sermon. The bad news is that our projector's HDMI port went totally out finally. It's been on the fritz for a while. It's out. The good news is we know what's wrong with it. We actually located what the issue is. And so we'll be fixing that this week. But in the meantime, Chandler is going to be Vanna White today, and she's going to run the slides from up here. So thank you, thank you so much. I was reading uh, an article just yesterday talking about um, since 1999, that's less than 20 years, suicides have increased by 25% across mostly every demographic. And the article is getting this idea that there is a crisis on our hands of meaninglessness, that the, the options that our Western society has offered us to say meaning can be found in these places and these structures and these systems aren't working. Um, and I bring that up in light of that video we just watched, that it feels like as our technologies are increasing, um, they're increasing the distance between one another. And we are all suffering from a crisis of meaninglessness. Where is true meaning? And of course, um, for us, we know that this is actually in line with the story of God and that at the table, if the table means anything, It means that we get to show up and show our real face, like our real face. And if Jesus is who he says he is, then that means he should be able to handle the full weight of our face. And in fact, he does. So I I am more convinced now than ever that what we, what Brooklyn needs, what you need, your friends need more than anything right now are those types of spaces. And according to the model that we see um, in Jesus's ministry, he always did it over food. So we're gonna do it that way too. Um, Can I get an amen for food? Yeah. Yeah. So sign up. um, Drop that that table leader card. Even if you can't make those dates, we have alternative dates already uh, offered, so I'll send those to you. So if you can't make those dates, we're going to make sure you're trained. Um, And even if you don't want to lead, but you just want to host, sign up. Or if you, you know, conversely, if you want to lead, but you don't want to host, or maybe I just said that, whatever the opposite is, sign up. We're going to make sure you get paired up with someone and we'll get something going. Awesome. Pray with me real quick, and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for the opportunity to slow down and to breathe in a seemingly hectic world. to remember the things that are really good gifts, like space and food 
and relationship. Lord, I think one of the things that I love most about you is how you don't ask us to change who we are before coming to you. The table is open wherever we are today, whatever we think about you, whether we're angry with you, whether we're rejoicing in you, whatever we think about you, your table says, come eat free of charge. That your table can handle the weight of our stories. And we know if we're being honest that they are really, really painful stories. I thank you for that today, Lord. I thank you for this space. I thank you for this community. I ask that you bless the vision that you've given us, that these tables would be spaces in Brooklyn where many people can encounter how deep your love is for them. Lord, bless our time today. Thank you so much for who you are. It's in your name, amen. All right, well, if you're joining us for the first time, we are in the middle of our summer series, which we are titling Storytime with Jesus. Storytime with Jesus. We've been looking at some of the parables in the gospel accounts. Um, As you know, if you've been with us, parables can be translated a couple different ways. They can be translated riddles, dark sayings, weapons of controversy. Uh, C.H. Dodd puts it well, and I'm gonna define it every single time for every single sermon because I think it sort of begins to reiterate what we're getting at. At its simplest, the parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. When Jesus taught in his day, he always taught in parables, always. And so there's a couple points that that are really interesting. It is, um, it's simple. That is to say, he uses concepts, he uses terms, he uses items that every single person uses every day, is around every day. They understand. He doesn't use $2 words. However, uh, he uses them, he, he employs them in such a way that they're very strange and very vivid. And then after you hear this story, you're wondering, okay, what do I do with this? How do I then respond? Once again, um, one last plug, we have a new YouTube channel and a new function in the life of our church. Uh, so subscribe to our YouTube channel and save this number. As uh, the message is, 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 as we're talking today, if there's a question that comes to your mind, that's an anonymous line, text the question in and then we'll pull them together. Whichever themes we see, um, we'll make a short little video attempting a response and that'll go out on Mondays. Um, so if you have questions, text that number. All right. With that, then we're gonna jump into today's parable. We're gonna continue in the theme of the kingdom of God. So if you have your Bible, smartphones, if not, we're gonna put it up on the screen. We're in Matthew 13 still, Matthew 13, and we're gonna read verses 24 through 30. This is how it reads. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Now when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. And the owner's servants came to him and said, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. And the servants asked him, 
do you want us to go and pull up the weeds? No, he answered. Because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. And then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Now this parable comes right after the meta parable we talked about two weeks ago about the farmer who sows seed in four different types of soil. Jesus is keeping it in the agricultural family, which is a good idea because he was talking to a lot of farmers. Basically at its simplest, what's going on here? A farmer goes out and he plants seed, good seed we're told. Not neutral seed, not bad seed, good seed, wheat. He plants it. And then they go away, they go to sleep. And while everyone's asleep, an enemy comes, we're told. An enemy comes and plants weeds amongst the good seed. No one notices for a while. No one notices, that is, until the good seed begins to sprout, begins to produce fruit. That's actually the Greek, what it, how it reads. Make fruit. So fruit begins to bear. And when that happens, then they're alerted the servants are alerted to the presence of the weeds in the garden. And the servants ask uh, the owner, wait, what, what's going on? I thought you planted good seed. Where did, where did this, the, the weeds come from? And he answers them, again, an enemy has done this, which we already know because he already told the listeners that. Well, the servants say, well, do you want us to go and pluck up the weeds? And he goes, no, because in so doing, you'll actually uproot the wheat as well. Let them both grow for the time being. And then at the harvest, the harvesters will come. Notice, not the servants, but the harvesters will come. And they will separate the two, burn the weeds, and bring the wheat into the barn. Now, more than other parables, the message of this one, the point of this one is pretty clear. Like we don't need to do a lot of searching for it. We know what the answer is. It's the taking to heart of the answer and putting it into practice that is strange and vivid and difficult to understand and presents questions. The message of the parable can be summed up in a single word, patience. Jesus is teaching people about the patience of the kingdom. I like the way Stanley Hauerwas puts it. This parable, like all the parables, is an apocalyptic parable. But apocalyptic simply names the necessity of the church to be patient, even with the devil. Again, if you remember, apocalyptic comes from the Greek apocalypsis, which simply means a revelation. So Hauerwas says, apocalyptic means the disruption of our time by God's time so that our time can begin to be redeemed or healed or the disruption of our world by God's world so that our world can begin to be healed. So what's he saying? He's saying the church, those of us who have turned our faces toward God, um, turned our faces toward the cross, we are an apocalyptic people. We are a people who have been invaded by God's world and by that invasion, we are beginning to be formed into the virtues and the practices of the kingdom. And one of those is patience, the patience of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is patience. And if you were with us with the Subversive Church series, maybe you'll immediately be recalled to Paul's litany in 1 Corinthians 13 and the very first thing he says of love, right? Love is patient. Love practices 
patience. The kingdom of God is patient. And therefore we, as an apocalyptic people, practice this patience. Well, if that's the answer to the riddle, there are now so many questions that are present. Like how do we even begin to practice this patience? What kind of patience? How long are we patient? I wanna focus on just a couple of these questions today. First, why did Jesus explain twice that an enemy did this? I don't know if you caught that. Again, he's telling this story. He's telling this parable in one sitting. And he says twice that an enemy has done this. Um, That's actually a very Jewish thing. Uh, If you repeat it twice, it has extra importance. I don't know if you ever do this with like your loved ones where you tell someone something important, but you feel like they didn't hear you. And so you don't wanna say it again because that's kind of nagging. So you try to figure out an alternative way to get there. So like in our household, one of, the, one of the, the things that I get accused of nagging of is asking Anna the floss, because Anna conveniently forgets the floss. Um, but then if I ask her, hey babe, did you floss tonight? She gets very angry at me for that. So instead, I, I find a different approach. So my sister-in-law is a, is a dentist, and I, I'll be like, babe, whether I had a conversation with Crystal earlier in the day, it doesn't matter. I'll be like, babe, I was talking to Crystal. She saw some patients that just had gnarly teeth. You know what the issue was? They didn't floss. Just leave that one there. But if you notice, Jesus tells them twice, an enemy did this. An enemy planted the weeds. The kingdom of heaven is good seed planted in the field. Everyone goes to sleep. An enemy comes and plants weeds right in the middle. In time, when the wheat begins to bear fruit, people see the presence of the weeds and they go, what happened? And then the guy says again, an enemy did this. But the listeners are like, we, are, we already know that. Why, why are you telling us again, Jesus? What's so important about saying an enemy did this? Well, I think... As I was reflecting on that and looking back at the story, there's one line, in the Greek it's one word, but it's a phrase for us, that is so obvious you can overlook it, but I think it has all the power in the world to unlock that question. And it's this, the enemy came, planted weeds in the middle of the wheat, and then he left, he departed. The enemy's not on the scene anymore. You can't see him. You can only see the weeds. That is to say, you can see the effects of the enemy's work, but you can't see the enemy anymore. A couple weeks back, a couple people from from this community put on an event called Sojourn, which was a night dedicated to listening and the sharing of stories from first and second generation immigrants. And it was an incredibly powerful, powerful event. And some of you shared, and I'm so grateful for it. I learned so much. As a Christian though, and as a pastor, I can't help it when I listen and and when I engage, I I listen from from a gospel filter. And so as I was listening to these stories, what was fascinating was something that was common in every single story and then something that was different in every story. Now the common thing in each and every story that was shared was pain. People have experienced tremendous pain and that was clear. What was different in each story was the source of the pain. And it was interesting as I was listening because people were attempting to to locate where did this pain come from? And so some are are, are pointing toward the immigration system and and some are pointing toward uh, a particular immigration officer and some are pointing to school systems that they grew up in and and some are pointing to just the the country uh, um, and and the, the culture. Some are pointing to the country that they immigrated from. 
Some are pointing to themselves. Everyone's sort of looking around saying, where is this pain coming from? So interestingly, there was a consistency in the inconsistency, the consistency in unable to locate the source of the pain, but the pain was real. We see the weeds, but where did they come from? Where's the enemy? He's departed. We see the effects of his work. We see the pain, we feel it, but where's the source of the pain? We can't find it. He's gone. Which again, as I'm reflecting on this, this brings up a word that, uh, that's not a popular word, but more and more, I feel like it's a word that needs to be brought back. I talked about it briefly last week. Don't, don't get angry at me just yet. And the word is sin. It is a slippery, slippery word. But at its core, and I know that's a word that has triggers and uh, emotional reactions, but at its core, sin simply means it's the shorthand way that we name and describe all the ways that the world is not as it should be. It's the shorthand to say everything is broken. It's the shorthand to say we can see the weeds and we see it in ourselves, but we don't know where it came from. Sin in the Greek is hamartano, and it simply means to miss the mark. So it was used in classical Greek for an archer, bow and arrow and a bow and arrow did, did not hit uh, the bullseye. It hamartanoed, it missed the mark. So it's this idea that the world had an intention, I had an intention, but it just can't live up to the mark. And I briefly shared a story last week about a conversation between Anna and me. And it was, it was one of those conversations where like, immediately when it begins, you know a fight could develop, you feel passions arising, but we, we tried to be adults. And we were like, oh, hold up. Let's eliminate passions and let's really engage in the hard work of listening, of empathizing, of active listening and repeating and really trying to understand. And we, we did that for hours. And by the end of it, you know where we had gotten? Nowhere, nowhere. We couldn't find one another. There was still an impasse, a separation that we couldn't bridge. That is sin. It's no one's fault. We were doing the best we could but there's something fundamentally broken in us and the institution of marriage. We're working as hard as we can and it's still not as we wish it was. That's all we mean when we say sin. But historically, we haven't liked using that word and that's also obvious why. Because there, there emerged this dichotomy between the church and the world. The church was the sinless place and the world was the place that had fallen short. And so it created this us versus them, where it felt, whether, whether real or perceived, um, this, this idea that the church was pointing fingers at the world, saying, you were sin and we're, we're safe in here. Now, the irony of the whole situation is that if we look around in our current cultural climate, it feels like we've gotten really good at being able to name the ills that afflict society. Like we can point and say, I can see where it's broken there. I can see how it's broken there. But we've kind of forgotten how to name the ills that afflict ourselves. So in a sense, in an ironic sense, our culture in some places has become what we so hated about the church from 30 years ago, this pointing of the fingers 
This idea that sin is out there, it's not in here. And the first thing the church offers us, the very first thing that the gospel says, that Jesus in this parable goes, he goes, an enemy did it and an enemy departed. Let me tell you again, an enemy did it and an enemy departed. Stop trying to locate out there. It's just, it's everywhere. The weeds are everywhere. And Jesus doesn't shy away from an us versus them dichotomy either. But it's not us versus them in the field. It's the farmer versus the enemy. And the farmer says, I'm being patient with him as well. You too. Reserve judgment. Reserve vengeance. Choose love. Let them both grow. And we remember, even as we consider the story of Jesus, that this was the man who knew the one who was to betray him. And yet even still, on the night that he was betrayed, offered up bread to Judas and said, this is for you too. This gift is still yours. Why did Jesus say it twice that an enemy did this? Because he's teaching us the patience to know that there is more to this world than you can see. The enemy is not on the scene anymore. We can only see the weeds, but there's more going on than you can see. Another question emerges, well, why couldn't the farmer tell earlier that weeds were in his field? Why did it take him until he realized that the, the fruit was sprouting on the wheat, the first signs of the fruit sprouted, and then they noticed the weeds. Um, that's definitely not my garden. <laughs> Anna and I, back in March, we, we went to, to Lowe's, we bought a bunch of mulch. Does anyone mulch their yards? Is that a Southern thing? Maybe it's a Southern thing, because no one else had heard about it when we talked about it. Um, but we bought a bunch of bags of mulch for our yards. We spent a lot of work, um, like building some extra patio space, like we planted some, some vegetables, we went to bed, we woke up the next night and there were green things everywhere poking out of the mulch. I'm like, where did you guys just come from? You weren't there yesterday when I was putting the mulch down and it probably wasn't you know, a day, but it definitely felt like that. And so as you're looking at the story, you're like, why couldn't the farmer tell earlier? Why couldn't the servants tell earlier that there were weeds in the field? Why did it take the presence of the fruit on the wheat first? And I wonder, as I was reflecting on that, if the purpose of good gifts, the purpose of fruit is to reveal the weeds, again, to use that word, the sin within. This comes from, this is a passage from, from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And he's talking about the law. And again, um, he's, he's looking at the people of Israel and he's, he's trying to figure out what's going on because the people of Israel were given the law for thousands of years and the law was not a burden. It was a good gift for Israel. They loved the law. It was the way of their God. It was the instruction of their father. They loved it. But they, they realized that no one could keep the law and because of Jesus, no one was saved through the law. Now, the only thing that matters is that we turn our face toward Jesus and we recognize that he is singular and unique in the hope of the world. And so he's trying to think, well, what was the purpose of the law? Why did God give Israel the law if he wasn't gonna save through it? And this is what he writes. He goes, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, again, all the ways that 
we and society and the world falls short of its intended mark. Sin, seizing the opportunity, afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. What's he saying? He's saying that when God gave Israel the law, is the law evil? No, the law isn't weeds. The law is fruit. The law is good. But that sin, the presence of the weeds, which was always there, though never recognized, seized the commandment and made visible what was already there. In order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. In a sense, the purpose of the gift of the law was to reveal to the Jewish people that they could not keep the law. You can almost see the vines twisting through the garden, infiltrating everything. And I don't think you have to look far in your own life about the good gifts and how they reveal deeper stuff within. When I consider the last couple years for me, you wanna know what a good gift was? A, A fruit of the wheat, a good thing, but that also by its presence revealed to me the sin within, (laughs) it's you guys, Hope Brooklyn. What an incredible, incredible gift to be invited by God to help start a new church, to help start a new community where people can find life and hope and grace. What an incredible, incredible gift. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. But you know what I realized almost immediately from starting this? I care a lot about what you think of me. (laughs) I care a lot. Like I'm talking about way back in the day when we're just starting once a month vision dinners and I send out the Evite list because we were super tech savvy and did Evite still. And I'm checking like maybe some days every 15 minutes to see who RSVP'd yes, who RSVP'd no. Why do they RSVP no? Was there something personal? Did I say something to them? Did I make them feel bad earlier? And I know I'm not alone in this, so I'm not even afraid. Don't, don't, don't act like you're not posting pictures on Instagram and checking every 15 minutes. Be like, who liked it? And then scrolling through the list. Which one's liked it? Why has this person not liked it yet? Right? What an incredible gift to help start a church. But through the presence of this good gift, through the presence of this fruit, sin was revealed inside of me that I never knew was there. I had no idea I cared so much about what people thought of me until I received this good gift. And then I was like, whoa, where is this coming from? Where is this coming from? Was the invitation to plant a church bad? No, but through it, my brokenness was revealed just how utterly broken I am. And I wouldn't have known had I not been invited. So patience, if the first point is patience to know there's more to the world than you can see. The second is the patience to know that there's more going on inside of you than you can see. And sometimes the presence of the good gifts, the presence of the fruit 
simultaneously um, reveals the presence of the weeds as well. And then the last question, if we're learning about the patience of the kingdom, and probably the one that, that immediately came to you when you read this, and it was asked, it was posed, why not just pull out the weeds now? Why won't God go ahead and fix the world, right? His servants asked the master. They're like, look, all right, we see the weeds now. Let's just go in and pull them out. And he says, no, verse 27, I think, no. For in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Which is a really interesting thought. Somehow, in some mysterious way, the roots of the weeds are now connected to the roots of the wheat. They are so deeply intertwined that you cannot pull out one without destroying the other. The gifts of God's good earth and the effects of its waywardness are so connected you can't separate the two. So this is the patience of redemption. The patience of redemption. You may have heard me explain this. When I explain redemption, I have an example that I always go to. Uh, it's my own broken body. I was born with Golden Heart Syndrome. Uh, it's a really weird syndrome, very rare. They don't know that, or at least they didn't know that you had it until you were born. So I was born with a lot of brokenness. My, my heart had holes, my back was twisted, um, my jaw was incomplete, my left ear was underformed. Um, just a lot of brokenness. If you were to ask me, Russ, do you think it's in God's intention for babies to be born with broken bodies? I say no. No, it's not. And why? Because we can see the form of a child who's not born broken and, and how beautiful and glorious it is. We can see uh, the form of, of a full-grown adult who's not broken and how wonderful that is. That's not the intention of God. But now here's, here's the kicker. If you were to ask me, Russ, if you could go back and be born with a whole body, would you? And obviously that's a hypothetical, but I think, I think if I have the courage enough to answer honestly, I would say no. And do you know why? Because when I think of the moments where I've had the most tangible encounters with God, they have every single one of them been related to the presence of these scars and this brokenness in me. And that, that is the scandal and the beauty of redemption. That God does not save us outside of our brokenness, such that if you were to ask me that, if he had encountered me outside of my scars, I'd be like, yeah, let's get rid of them because I still have relationship with God. No, no, no. He does not save us outside of our brokenness. The only place where you can find God is right in the middle of your most broken moments, the most broken parts of who you are. In the sin is where you find God. And I challenge you, consider your own life. Or is, not, is it not the most painful seasons in your life when you would say, I wouldn't change them? Why? Because that's where you met God. That's where you were, that's where you were encountered. That's where you were grown. And this, this is what allows us to call sin, sin, saying it wasn't the intention and we mourn it. We mourn how it's broken while still saying, but God is not ashamed of it. He's not ashamed of it. 
He's not ashamed of that, that, that deep, dark secret that no one knows. He's not ashamed of it. In fact, if you want to encounter him, odds are you're not to meet him right there in it. That's where he's waiting to say, right there, I will touch you, I will kiss you, and you will be with me. It'll still leave a scar, but you will be with me. See, if God had saved his field, or if the farmer had saved his field outside of the weeds, then he could uproot them now, no issues. But he doesn't, he saves us through the weeds. He saves us through the weeds. When Anna and I first moved to the city, uh, I was a pastoral resident at Hope Astoria in Astoria, Queens. And there was a guy there, I'll call him Daniel. Um, and Daniel was a recovering addict. He was a Christian, he loved God. He loved the gospel. He was so alive, but he could not get clean. And so he bounced around from rehab facility to rehab facility. And at this current moment in his life, he was at a rehab facility near the church, near Hope Astoria. But Daniel, because he loved the Lord so much, while he was in the rehab facility, he invited people to church and he started a Bible study. And a couple people started coming on Sundays with him. And I got to meet them and I got to befriend them. And five of them ended up encountering the love of God and got baptized. And it was incredible. Would they have come if Daniel hadn't relapsed and invited them? Perhaps, perhaps. But the patience of redemption is that the weeds and the wheat grow together and that God weaves together the weeds the brokenness, the sin, the stuff we don't want to look at. He weaves that into our story and makes something so beautiful out of it that we can't imagine how it would have been more beautiful if there weren't the presence of this in our lives. The day of the baptism, actually Daniel wasn't there. He was sick. He was on some medications and so he was in a hospital. And so I visited him after the baptism and I got to see a rare sight. I got to see him um, really, really weak, and, and really low and he was crying and he was crying because he missed his child because he couldn't get clean. He had lost custody rights of his child and he didn't know what was gonna happen and he didn't know why he couldn't get clean. And I had no words, I had no words to offer him. I was just overcome with love for him. And I just told him, Daniel, God sees you. You are so loved and just so you know, there would be no baptism if it weren't for you through the thing that you wish you could change about your life, through the thing that the, the, the chief weed that you wanna uproot right now, in that God is still working and is encountering people with his love and he's proud of you. Don't feel ashamed, he is so proud of you. So when people ask, where's your God in a broken world? With the patience of the kingdom, we say he's in the broken world. He's at work right in the center. And from what is seemingly death, there begins to grow life and redemption. I wanna invite the worship team back up. This is the story of a world that disrupts our imaginations and reveals to us the patience of God. It is a patience that knows that there is more to the world than we can see because an enemy has done this. 
The enemy has planted the weeds and departed. It's a patience that knows that God gives us gifts and sometimes the presence of good things, the presence of fruit. One of the, the, the additions is that it reveals to us the weeds within. It reveals to us the brokenness within. So it's the patience that knows that there's more to us than we can see. And lastly, we ask, well, why don't we just pluck up the roots now? Why don't we pluck up the weeds? And God says, because the two are working together. Because the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of this entire story is that the perfect creator God, the one who has not missed the mark, he who knew no sin, who knew no waywardness, became sin so that we might become children of God. He who was not broken became broken. His words to you are not get clean first and then come to me. His words are stop, stop, stop right there. If you're looking for me, I will be found in the absolute worst moments of your life. That's where I am. And not with a tone of condemnation, not with a tone of judgment, but with overwhelming, overpowering love. Right there in the deepest, deepest brokenness, that's where Jesus is. Weaving together, saying, I will kiss and I will heal and I will make whole. It's the patience that allows us to see the power and the love of God whose power is expressly revealed in the way that he does not save outside of our sin, but right in it. And on the day of that baptism, I thought how full it was, how perfect, what a perfect picture of the gospel that these five human beings, these five children of God, would encounter the love and not the condemnation of their creator through a recovering addict who couldn't get his life clean, who just invited them and loved them, and through a pastor who cared a lot more about what other people thought than they did. We're all broken. We all can't get it together. And in that, precisely in that, and not apart from it, we begin to see the beauty of Jesus' good news. Will you pray with me? Lord, we confess that patience is hard and it's becoming harder. We want to judge. We want to cast a verdict. We see things that are clearly broken we see things that look like evil and we want them gone. We see things in our own lives that we can't correct and we want them gone. What a terrifying and hard message to hear you say that we will only find you in the middle of those things. The life that emerges out of death. We don't have the power for that kind of patience, Lord. That is an apocalyptic patience. That's a patience of another world. That's a patience of another kingdom. But you say for those of us who turn our faces to you, who confess our need for you, 
that we are given your spirit, we are given your eyes to see, we are given your hands to stretch out, we are given your patience. And so we pray, Lord, I pray for each person here that they would know a couple things, that they would know that they are not condemned, that you have never condemned them. And if they've ever felt condemned, that that grieves your heart. They are not condemned, they are loved, you, they are delighted in, you are overjoyed with them. You're so overjoyed that they're here and that they would know that the things in their life which feel so broken, if they'll allow you to approach, to come near, you will come not to destroy, but to make something beautiful from it. Lord, give us the patience to allow you to do that work so that then we can have the patience to engage in that work in our worlds. Jesus, we need you so much. We need you so much. We need the patience that will extend to our betrayer and say this bread and this cup is still for you. It's still for you. Come minister to us, Lord. Come speak to us. Come heal us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.